I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Season 2 greetings, everybody. Serial Season 2 has dropped, and the Crime Writers are back. So thanks very much for tuning in again. Uh, I've got some thank yous that I'll get to later in this episode. Wanted to let you know that one way that you can support this broadcast throughout all of Season 2 of Serial is by going to our website, crimewriterson.com, and use our new link to Amazon. You click on it, and it'll take you right to the regular Amazon page. And from there, do all your shopping. And we get kind of like a finder's fee if you do that. doesn't cost you anything extra. Go and buy all the things you would on Amazon. Books. DVDs, clothes, anything that you'd get at the Haji shop, I guess, you could get there at Amazon, and uh, that will help us continue to broadcast throughout Serial Season 2. Okay, now, let's get this started. What do I press? This one here. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, Serial Season 2. If you're new to our little podcast, here's some background. Along with my real-life husband and co-author, Kevin Flynn, I've written several true crime books, and you may have even seen me on True Crime TV talking about the cases we've reported. For my day job, I work in public radio, and when Serial dropped last year, I said to Kevin, my worlds are colliding. I was fascinated with how Sarah Koenig, a reporter I really admire, was unpeeling the layers of a true crime story and using some public radio tricks and production techniques to really make it work. As for Kevin, he spent a lot of years as a TV reporter, so he had his own take on what we were hearing each week and, of course, what we weren't hearing. At around episode 10 of season one of Serial, Kevin said to me, you know, we should really start a podcast. And so we did, along with noir fiction author Toby Ball and Laura Bricker. She's a former defense investigator, a true crime author, a journalist, as well as a licensed P.I. Before long, we added to our topic list. So yes, we dish on Serial, but we also talk about journalism, pop culture, true crime, writing, TV shows. We also give some very uninsightful answers to audience questions. Between seasons of Serial, we've been a little bit inconsistent with our podcast production, but I'm happy to announce that we are kicking off our second season of Crime Writers On. It will be a weekly podcast for the duration of Serial Season 2. And after that, well, I guess we'll have to see how it goes. So now that you're caught up, let's get down to it. Joining me today is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and all-around nice guy, Kevin Flynn. Good morning, Kevin. Flynn, Kevin, reporting for duty, ma'am. 
All right, that I guess is contextually appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) And also on the line from all the way over on the other side of New Hampshire is Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And joining us remotely from yet another undisclosed location somewhere in New Hampshire is Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Good morning. First question, and this is an important one. Laura, I'm going to start with you. Where were you when you first found out that episode one of season two of Serial had dropped? <laughs> I, I feel like this is kind of uh, a little dirty. I was in bed, actually. Ooh. <laughs> Checking my phone, which I'm not supposed to do according to my nine-year-old son because it's bad to wake up and do that, but I did. What about you, Toby? Where were you when you found out that episode one of season two of Serial had dropped? Uh, I was ironically eating cereal, um, (laughs) reading uh, The Guardian on my computer. All right, that that makes you sound both simultaneously smart and dumb at the same time, if that's possible. (laughs) Was it Cookie Crisp? That was great. It was uh, cinnamon wheat checks. All right, cinnamon checks. All right, whole grain. At least you redeemed yourself there. Kevin, where were you? We weren't we weren't <laughs> where, together. So where I don't were, know you were you when you heard that cereal broke? That's right. I, I was on the porch listening to the wireless, and I heard those dirty Japs at Bomb Pearl Harbor, and I got into a lather. Um, that's what, like my grandfather would say. I was, I was just about to leave for work, and I got the alert on my uh, my iPhone that said uh, you have an episode of cereal, and then dust one, and I was, oh, what is this? And I texted you, and you said, I already know, which is basically every conversation we ever have when I tell you something. Pretty much. Well, the reason I knew was because, uh, as you might know, I work in public radio, mm-hmm. and I was actually on the air pitching our fund drive, which was just happening you know, around the time of the recording of this podcast. We're still sort of about to end our fund drive. I have one more shift left. And I heard in the 604 NPR newscast AM, I heard a underwriting spot for cereal, like cereal advertised on NPR that the new season had dropped. And I was like, what? And I almost could not then ask for money on the air because I was so excited. And I watched it download on my phone and then I had to wait basically four hours until I could listen to it, which was a bummer. Okay, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, I think it's very tempting to start this whole thing with, you know, what did you think? But I'd like to take a little bit of a different approach and let's do it the Sarah Koenig way and sort of unpack this layer by layer. Let's talk about how episode one of season two opened. Now, Toby, I'm going to start with you. The thing that we sort of heard, which is a real no-no, I think, in any kind of narration and in any kind of radio narration especially, was basically 14 minutes initially of Sarah Koenig talking with just little drops of tape here and there. But the episode opened with the prisoner handoff video and, you know, a video that we've sort of all seen and her describing a video. What did you think of the opening of this episode? Um... That's an interesting question. I, I thought part of it was to remind people of why they know this story or provide, I, I guess, some kind of context for their for whatever knowledge they have of it. I thought it was also, you know, it was the way she did it was fairly dramatic, I think, and it kind of drew people in. It's like starting off a thriller with, you know, you start off a thriller in the middle when there's something exciting happening and then you go back and you kind of, how did we get here? Laura, what did you think of the opening of the episode? I liked it. Um, You know, for somebody that's followed this story sort of superficially, I think it's good to really start at the beginning and go through it, um, you know, a little bit more in depth for those of us that are not as up to speed on this story. And I have to say, I went and watched the video, the full video on the serial website afterwards, and uh, she made it sound so much more interesting than it looked in that video. Her description of it was much more vivid than sitting there watching it. You know, I couldn't understand what anybody was saying. And my take on it would have been like, why is this guy blinking? What's wrong with his eyes? 
Did they have him in the dark, you know, someplace for five years? And she actually brought this much more to life in the way that she described it to me. What do you think, Kevin? Do you agree with the fact that Sarah's description made it work? Did you think it worked? Oh, I thought it was a very great piece of writing. I thought it was a a smart choice. I mean, if this were a book, this would be the prologue, which is a good, you know, that's a good scene to describe and get it going. And I also think when it comes to the, the larger podcast, this is the opening number, and it's going to set up the show for for everything else that comes after it, why this is important. And I think that if you're going to compare it to, like, season one, like that whole first episode, I think the theme was it's so hard to remember what happened two weeks ago. Because I think maybe she thought going through Serial that by the time they got to episode 12, you know, that was going to be the theme. And it, it changed wildly because of the real-time all, yeah, reporting. real-time reporting. Right. And we don't really know how much real-time stuff, you know, we don't know how much is in the can and, you know, how much this is. I'm sure it's mapped out, but we don't know how much of it's done. That's actually an interesting question because I'm thinking that a lot of it's in the can. I mean, I think that this has been, I don't think that she's doing the real time thing again. Oh, I I think it's going to be really hard for the outside influences, not to people coming out of the the woodwork. But but anyway, I think that this is really, again, I think it sets this up as um, okay, remember, this is what we're going to talk about. This guy, this moment, it's all about him trying to get home, the cost that we have to pay to get him home, and all the repercussions. And so if she's writing a, the book version of Serial, that's a great opening chapter to go with. Now, one of the things that really struck me, and I, I tweeted this out because I just really, and I, I was talking about it yesterday in the newsroom where I work, the writing of the first 15 or so minutes of this episode. When I say that an editor would never let a reporter or a producer do a story with just 14 minutes of them talking, like that is, we don't let someone do a story in our newsroom that has more than 30 seconds or a minute of them talking or explaining because it doesn't work typically on the radio just to hear somebody talking. The writing of this beginning of this episode was so unbelievably strong. And Laura, I was actually thinking about you and Toby because there's vocabulary that you can't use in news or that you never would use in news. And then there's vocabulary that works in fiction, but only sometimes. And in this 14 minutes, she used the word recalcitrant and she used the word crap. So did you hear the strength in the writing? Did you hear those words? What did you think as you heard her unpacking this episode for the first few minutes? I was thinking to myself, oh, thank goodness, a podcast that's so easy to listen to because I've been trying to find a substitute all these months um, since season one ended. And there's just something about her voice and her manner of delivery, Uh, you know, even when she's talking about, you know, and then the cows wander on the scene. And, you know, I don't think it was supposed to be funny, but just her manner of delivery, I kind of, you know, that seemed a little bit humorous to me. Um, And then, you know, when she was describing how they came out like team captains right before the starting whistle, these were things, they were just the way that she described things made it very easy for me to follow. And honestly, I didn't notice that it was that many minutes of her talking because I was like, oh, Sarah Koenig, I really love listening to her. And I just, it didn't even matter to me that she was talking that long. Toby, I thought of you because uh, in an episode we recorded a little while ago, we talked about, you know, sort of the rise of some of the fiction podcasts. And you complained a little bit about the writing in Limetown in particular. And I just thought like, you know, I bet this is what Toby was talking about, that they really can't do an impression of Serial unless they get on their writing game. Is, is, that, is this what you meant? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why it's been so popular, I think, is you've got really good writers. I think they, they take the time to get that stuff right. I mean, I imagine there must have been many drafts and takes on this piece because it's crucial, you know, especially for new listeners. 
you know, if you're going to go through 15 minutes like that, it's got to be spot on. It's like what they talk about for writers. It's like you've got to get them quickly. You know, if, if you've lost them in the first page or, or, or chapter, you know, they're not going to read on. So, yeah, uh, essentially, I, I think they're they're very good at it. And it was sort of a reminder of what the, you know, what the top is like, which is not really a, I'm not meaning to be dismissive of these other podcasts, some of which I, I really enjoy. But this is sort of the gold standard. Well, we've been dismissive of some of those podcasts. I, I should say not dismissive of all of the podcasts. Right, yes. right. No, some of them are really well done. I think the message, for example, is a very well-written, well-crafted, well-produced uh, podcast, but it's not at this level. It's just not. And I think that this is why that's a hard place to get a job. <laughs> this American life is a very hard place to get a job. Kevin, what do you want well, to say? But to pick up on Toby's point, that you know, you do forget that this is a writing team. However, Sarah never loses her voice. Mm-hmm. You know, the style, it, it still is essentially her. And also what Laura was saying, when I heard Sarah's voice again for the first time, and I realized how many other voices I've been hearing, and it was kind of like, to hear the Beatles play again. It mm-hmm. was like, oh, yeah. The way she speaks and just the, the tone of her voice and the, the, how familiar it was and we haven't heard it in so long. Um, and I don't think she hasn't done any uh, episodes or stories for This American Life in no, the past No, but they've year, been right? playing some of her vintage This American Life right. uh, so, segments. I mean, obviously, this is what she's been doing. And so, yeah, great. I mean, I think they're hitting their form. And they've got a lot to work with uh, this season, it appears. We, we recently read an obituary of somebody in, in my family, actually, who passed away. And it said it, it was remarked on his um, singing the national anthem oh, at yeah. basketball games without adornment and delivering the Zero them embellishments, yes. That's what Sarah Koenig's voice reminds. No embellishment. She just delivers. And it sounds like her. I hear some of Julie Snyder's writing, maybe, because I'm very familiar with Julie Snyder's writing. But um, it's definitely very her. So I, I want to actually move on to another very sort of This American Life thing that I suspect was a topic. Topic of a lot of debate in their own little uh, reporting, uh, in, their, in their journalism discussions. So all of the access we have to Bergdahl is not direct. Kevin, Sarah is using Mark Ball's phone conversations of Bergdahl. Obviously, there's a lot of original conversations that we're going to hear in this. We've already heard some with other soldiers. We hear her at the end of this episode, adorably, somehow, adorably, calling, calling the, the Taliban. Taliban. <laughs> 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 Only Sarah Koenig could make that adorable, I guess. Um I imagine they had a debate over whether or not to use secondhand tape. I know it's often a debate in our own newsroom. I know it's just not something that This American Life typically would prefer to do. And then she had this long sort of explainer about, like, pre-apology about why we'd hear some stuff in the quality of the tape. What do you think about hearing the secondhand tape in an episode of Serial? I, I, the question of whether or not to use it and whether we're comfortable, you know, is there an ethical thing? No, I, because they... They are partnering with uh, Page One, which is the name of the production company. I think that's fine. I think unlike the chemistry that you'd have between Adnan and Sarah, you know, there's a different kind of chemistry between Mark and Bo. And you're right. I noticed, I looked at the clock. It was 18 minutes into it before there was an inter- Sarah had done an interview. And the, everything else had been either her exposition or excerpts from these these tapes. I think it's okay. I mean, I think in, in a lot of cases, like where we've done essentially secondhand reporting, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to call it that, but we've used other sources other than a direct interview with somebody. As we're writing true crime. Because they might be in prison. <clears throat> they might be in prison. And, <laughs> right. They might be dead. Um, you're using police reports as your, your main source. Um, you're using other interviews uh, in other newspapers or TV, whatever. I think that's fine. And I think that they're very transparent about it. And, you know, again, it's kind of weird where we, we don't have – as the listener, we had there's like this wall between us and the protagonist again. Well, if he's a protagonist, which we don't know yet. I mean, that's the interesting thing. Toby, I'm wondering if you think, you know, we heard Sarah Koenig and Adnan Syed's sort of rapport in season one, and I think that was very important to the telling of the story was hearing their rapport and, you know, hearing him call her Koenig, you know, he'd throw that out there. Do you think that the, you know, the lack of rapport that we're, I mean, we're, that we're not going to hear rapport between Sarah and Bergdahl directly do you think that will make a difference, or do you think that maybe she'll develop a rapport with somebody else? Like, what did you? What do you think of this glass wall that that Kevin describes? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I, I think when I heard sort of the format of it, which is that we have these tapes, and we're going to use those plus these other interviews and stuff, I was thinking a little bit about the first season and about how this. It seems like it might be some kind of combination of Adnan and Jay in that. I imagine, depending on how they how things kind of play out, that there's going to be questions that we'd really like to ask Bo, but aren't going to get the opportunity to. So while we have access to him pretty fully, you know, there's not going to be a chance to follow up with him on certain things. You know, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, so much of the first season was Sarah and Adnan's sort of funny relationship, I guess. And awkward that, and funny, right? Like it was like, yeah. yeah, I mean, she was talking, it was, it was awkward. But also, I think she got some criticism for it. But for me, it was just exactly what it should have been. And she exposed how weird it was. And that's what made it feel. She became Nancy Drew, which made Serial One really compelling. Right. We said, we decided at the end, we said this was really Sarah's story right. and not Adnan's. I think I had more issues with, with that relationship and the way it played out in the podcast than, than maybe you guys did. And it'll be interesting to see, will she have that same kind of emotional connection at one remove with Bo Bergdahl? What do you think, Laura? Do you, do you think it matters whether or not she has this direct contact with Bergdahl? You know, I, I don't. Um, for me, I think this is really going to be kind of an interesting window into Bo Bergdahl because this was not the original intent of these recordings. Um, so I think it's going to be a little bit more authentic and maybe a little bit more personal than we're expecting. I would expect as they get going in their 25 hours, they're both going to let their guard down a little bit more. And they were recording in a way that they're not thinking this is something that's going to be used in a show like Serial. This was just for background information. So it's almost, I don't want to say voyeuristic, but a little bit like we're getting a little bit of a window into the background of these people um, that we might not normally have had. It's going to be way more candid and, 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 and maybe a little less elegant because uh, unlike, you know, Adnan, who knew he was being interviewed, mm-hmm. Bergdahl obviously knows he's being taped, but he's not playing the role of an interviewee, carefully parsing his words. Mm-hmm. He might not have said, I want to be Jason Bourne, if he thought that, you know, that was going to be broadcast. He's also not in prison. So he's not right. for, he's not like talking to somebody and he hasn't talked to anybody, met anybody new for a long time. We talked about that phenomenon on earlier podcasts. When you talk to people who are in prison for a crime, they are really trying to make a brand new whole impression on you because you are the first new person they've talked to in yeah. a really long time. Unlike Adnan, he can actually go to the Sprint store if exactly. there's a problem with his phone. <laughs> exactly. I, I would just say that I think, I think to an extent they have similar um, sort of outcomes in mind because I think 
you know, Bergdahl, knowing he's talking to somebody who wants to make a film about him, probably has a lot at stake about how he's going to be portrayed in that film. So I don't know how sincere and honest he might be all the time in that he's probably going to try and put himself in the best light. So when this film is made, he's the hero and he's not this deserter who got some people killed and earn the wrath of part of society. I'm going to do a little Sarah Koenig trick here and say, um, I promise we're going to get back to her Zoom analogy that she sort of lays out at the beginning, because I think that's a much bigger conversation. And even though it happened at the beginning, it's something I want to talk about in a little bit. So I promise I'll get back to that, guys. Oh, you know what? Let's just muse on that for a second. Laura, Sarah does promise us things in this episode. You know, she says, I promise I'll do this. I promise I'll do this. But right now, let's do this. Do you think it's necessary for her to make those promises to keep us in? Is that a smart move? Well, I think it sort of gives you the heads up as to what's coming. Um, You know, if you're thinking and your brain is sort of processing the story in a certain way, you may be thinking, oh, wait, why isn't she talking about that? And I think she can almost sort of anticipate the questions that the listeners are having. I think it worked. Um, You know, like at one point when she said, let's just pause on that when she really wants to highlight a point, um, like let's pause on him being in the Taliban's hands for five years. So it worked for me. One of the things that he says is his ulterior motive for, you know, formulating this plan to walk away from the base. The thing that he says that really sticks out to me and that sort of made me start asking questions kind of immediately about Bo Bergdahl is, I want to do this to show people who I really am. People who used to know me, you know, show them that I am who I look like I am. And then he sort of gets into that weird conversation about the Jason Bourne super soldier. Kevin, did you have questions about like, what is he talking about there? I mean, is that is there something wrong with who he is that we're going to find out? Is there some reason why people wouldn't I mean, think the, he the is The way who he, he is? says, uh, the, the people that knew me, yeah. is kind of referring He's to... He's very specific about that. It really stuck out to me. Did that stick out to you? Um, now that you mention it, it does in the sense that it makes you wonder, and I think he's talking about, well, maybe the people he went to high school with and everything, he's a young guy, the people who are in his unit. One of the facts that I know, okay, it's not in, it hasn't been presented into evidence yet, but one of the things I do know about his biography is that he washed out of the Coast Guard. So it's a good question about why the Army took him a couple of years later. Uh, however, I think the reason he washed out was something along the lines of, I forget the name of it, but something like separation anxiety. No, that sounds like what happens when mom and dad, yeah. But it has the word separation or anxiety in the title. Something like, it basically, you Homesickness? Know, is that what it was? Uh, it's, some, it's something along the lines of depression and or some sort of mental inadequacy for the, the task of of. Coast Guard boot camp. And just to be clear, you're not saying that people with depression are mentally ill. No, 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 of course not. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. no, 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 no. Want to clear that up? No, yeah. And I'm not saying that, that he's mentally ill, but I'm saying that that was, it wasn't like he couldn't do the push-ups. Okay. It, it was It was something sort of with his, his mental toughness. Right. That's why he washed out of the Coast Guard. He probably was hanging on to that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think the big thing that we are going to always wonder as we move through is what are his true motivations? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that Sarah said, I promise I'll get back to that. And that's great because I I can just imagine people, it's like doing a PowerPoint presentation. People want to know what's, no, I'm like, no, it's on the next slide. Wait, 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 wait. She's just cutting that off saying and and recognizing, yeah, uh, this is what he's saying, but you're right. This might be bullshit. Right. And I'm acknowledging that. And I know you have questions because, man, if they thought Adnan was controversial, uh, Bo Bergdahl, way more controversial. And, and we've seen it already in the national and controversial news. in a very timely way, yeah. given the national conversation right now, which, you know, of course, Serial Team knew that the election was coming up, but they couldn't have known that there would be this renewed look at sort of, you know, 
people who cavort with the other side kind of, you mm-hmm. know, stuff going on. Toby, what did you think of Bergdahl's narrative, his story, his explanation of why it was that he walked away? What questions did it raise for you? I'll go back to what you were talking about before when he mentioned the Jason Bourne thing. And, you know, I, I don't know. From a f- fiction writer standpoint, that to me would be sort of signaling that he sort of sees himself as a protagonist in this greater story. And that would, in turn, sort of call a little bit into question his critique of his superiors and whether they were actually doing things that were endangering people or whether it's that he kind of sees himself as, you know, this hero who who sees this incompetence or corruption around him and is going to do something to save people. That was kind of my first reaction to it. And then when he kind of gets out there and he's in the desert and he's like, oh, man, you know, maybe I didn't think this through well enough, but I can't go back because I'll probably get shot. So what's the next thing? And he gets lost and he decides he's going to, like, track down some people who are planning IEDs. To me, and again, you know, I'm not saying that this is some accurate insight into Bo Bergdahl, but, but coming from a fiction standpoint, You'd be writing about a guy who has this kind of vision of himself that he's trying to sort of make work in the real world. And then he once he starts doing it, he realizes that he's kind of in over his head and that what what he was imagining doesn't really line up with what reality is. Do you know what stuck out with me, Toby, is that he didn't bring his gun or his night vision goggles. And he, you know, he had a plan to go from like point A to point B. He's out there, he says. He, you know, decides to change the plan and become, you know, a secret agent and look for guys planning IEDs at night and following them back to their houses. And his, you know, platoon mate says his rifle, his goggles, his stuff was sort of neatly folded and he had mailed his stuff home. The, sort of the lack of, you know, not he, he, he had the wherewithal to buy a, an outfit, a costume, so to speak, but not to bring anything else that could be protective or helpful. He did have three knives. Okay. But, but, but just, but go ahead. <laughs> no, but your point about firearms and expensive well, Jason, stuff, Well, yeah. Jason Bourne could probably get away with three knives and, yeah. <laughs> and those guys in the, the motorcycles. The shoelaces, sure, yeah. Exactly. So, Laura, what, what did you think of his story? I just felt like he had, um, like you said, it, it, this whole premeditated plan, but it really wasn't realistic. It's like he had a very grand grandiose um, sort of opinion of his own expertise and talents. And like Toby said, then you get out there and it's like, oh, well, that's not going to work. So it's on one hand, you know, I'm listening to it, trying to sort of analyze and, you know, this is totally armchair diagnosing, you know, what is going on with this guy? You know, he's, he's clearly premeditating this entire plan, but he's doing it in such an unrealistic and unsustainable way that it just... It makes me really want to know more about what's going on inside his mind. And, you know, also I'm curious um, if they're going to get into any sort of psychological evaluation that was done on him, because I'd be really curious to know a little bit more about his mental status. Well, let's not forget that, again, that the point wasn't to go out and be Jason Bourne. His whole plan was the dust one. And so he wanted to raise this Which, alarm. by the way, can we just say, what a great name that The military is. stuff is great. It really is. And, and his, his talking about the rifle types that the, that the guys in the I hope soldiers had. on Serial never makes a podcast because <laughs> they would totally kick us. And well, the, th- the thing that I love is how she explains the things she needs to explain. She doesn't explain the things that we can just figure out. But like the name Dust One was just like, 
It's a great episode name, but it's also a great name for that, you know, basically that man overboard alert. I mean, it's... it's Duty status, just, whereabouts unknown, just, yeah. Just, just as a piece of prose. But it's and, great. And, and, and another great, if you guys haven't looked at it yet, do the flyover map on the the Serial Podcast website, because it really does give you the impression, oh, okay, it is essentially a straight line from the operating post, OP messed to the forward operating base. And it does look like a straight line, 18 miles in the desert. And I guess in your head, you could say, oh, if I just fill up my camel pack and uh, run at night, I could do that. And it's obvious now, like, you, you know, you don't have to go too far to realize you've just really stepped in it. I, I want to talk about OP Mast for a second, because I think that her description of that place, Pit and of hell. How, how she sort of went into it and um, talked about the concertina wire, the group of trucks, the pit, the burning garbage. We hear the conversation where she asked the soldier, you know, did you burn your shit? We hear the detail about the stick sort of being burnt closer and closer, the dust being like moon dust. And then, of course, when she's Oh, just- I got to clean the house today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please Just do. Just remembered, yeah. <laughs> please do. We don't, we don't want to get sick because we weren't able to have the resources to, to keep things clean enough. Um, but but she And then she talks about Bergdahl's packing, and she sort of does the things we carried sort of list. She has all of these details there that really, I had the impression, were sort of meant to show us the conditions into which we're sending, you know, the United States is sending 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 and 22-year-old young men, and then hearing the voices of other men in the platoon. I don't know. I think those details really matter, even if narratively, again, I think I I overhear all these news edits all the time, and I think that I would hear the editor in our newsroom say, you know, I wouldn't include that. Maybe for the web, you can put that on the web, but... Not in the audio story. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think it goes towards his motivation for wanting to get out of that outpost and saying that conditions were so bad. Maybe. I mean, I think you have to describe well, what were the conditions like. Mm-hmm. And I think also if you're going to say that the leadership was really poor and dangerous, I think she will get into that. Laura, what did you think of those details? What did you think of hearing about that place? And and were you curious about what he meant by the leadership, you know, possibly needing to be psychologically evaluated? Are you, are you sort of dying to know what he's talking about? Yeah, actually, that was one of the notes um, that I made there, um, you know, because I'm thinking, I mean, it sounds awful. It sounds like a horrible place. And these these all the other soldiers are clearly um, validating that. But I'm, I'm finding myself thinking, OK, we're, we've got these other soldiers. Are they going to agree that there were leadership problems or is it just that this was such a miserable place and Bo Bergdahl couldn't deal with being there and his leader told him he needed to be there? I mean, is that just... I'm really curious to hear what comes out about if these other soldiers are going to talk about any leadership um, difficulties that they saw. What do you think, Toby? Do you think that these soldiers are going to corroborate Bergdahl? Do you think some will be on his side, some won't be? I mean, she says that they're all over the map, I think, you know. And and by the way, I do love when she lists all the names and it's like Ben, another guy named Ben. You know, she's Scott, that's not his name. <laughs> oh, and not his real name. I loved when not his real yeah, name. Yeah, he's related to Kathy. I don't care. Scott. <laughs> Scott, yes. What did you think? What, what do you think we're going to hear in some of these soldier interviews, Toby? Do you have any guesses? Uh, you know, I don't other than I think whenever you have a bunch of people who are under the same you know, leadership, that opinions will vary regardless of whether that leadership is provably incompetent or unrealistic or whatever. So I, it wouldn't it would surprise me if they were all agreeing about their view of their leadership. I had a slightly different take on um, why I thought she spent so much time on the camp. You know, there's such a, at least in my mind, there's such a range of possible places where people who are in Afghanistan, soldiers who are in Afghanistan are, 
and some of them are have like actual latrines and they're like really a base sounds like what they were in was was basically a camping situation you know they have tents and they they burn their garbage in a in a hole and stuff so the, this idea that he didn't walk off a base but that he really walked off this sort of heavily fortified campground to me I, I think made a lot of difference in the way I kind of perceived what actually happened. It's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that I think we're hearing is that, you know, we're being asked, I think, to expand the way we're thinking about this story. And, you know, we hear the news footage of, you know, Anderson Cooper, and then we hear the little Donald Trump clip. Oh, God, she gives that great description of uh, the antiseptic upper floor of pissed off politicians, you know, and that's normally where these stories go. And she, I think, is uh, going to be telling us a story about expanding your thinking, not the whether or not you did it, but the why. I mean, do you think that that's what this whole season is going to be about? Or is it going to be about something else? I mean, is that a critical component of the season, you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the last season, the first season was more, you know, is this somebody that's wrongfully convicted? Um, and this is, you know, he's he's admitted that he left. We know that he left. It's a question of are we going to see a reason that justifies it? And I think it's going to be pushing people's boundaries in terms of humanizing a person in this situation who's been fairly vilified uh, to this point. And we are all human. And I think that there is sometimes this expectation that, and rightly so, that people in this situation are held to a higher standard. They're not going to have any sort of mental weakness and they're going to have the ability to tough it out. So I think that hearing from him directly is really, it's not black and white. This is going to bring some gray into it in terms of, is this something that you agree with? Can you understand how he did it? And if so, you know, what do you think should happen to him? I think one of the other things, and Toby, this is something that came up over and over again with season one, is that the evidence and the files and the memories were so old that it was impossible to get to a lot of the, the truths. And this is something we're talking about, like, in the last six years. I mean, this, these are people who were, the memories are fresh. There's documentation, possibly. There are new interviews. It's not like we're going to have to, you know, hunt people down, um, you know. Uh, do you think that makes a difference, that the case is recent, that it's ongoing, um, in, just in terms of the narrative that Sarah is going to be able to present, and whether it's real time or all in the can already? I think there's a lot of things that are different from the amount of, of press this has already gotten to the stakes, the things that were at stake for the people who she's going to be talking to. I mean, for the soldiers, he created a situation that put them in danger when they're trying to find him. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think would sort of, it would certainly color my sort of perception of what went on. And again, I, I, I think, as you alluded to before, a lot of people already have their minds made up about this, and sometimes it falls along political lines, but Donald Trump thinks he's a traitor who probably should be executed. So you're already starting off with these preconceived notions about who he is and, and the ethics of his actions. So I, I think there'll be a lot of differences. I think it'd be a big, a big challenge for some of the listeners because you're right, Toby, they will be bringing their perceptions of the war with them. And if you've got a, if someone who's a veteran or you've got someone who lost somebody in the war on terror or you've got someone who is um, you know, adamantly against the war, you, you're not going to change anybody's minds about that. And a lot of people are. And I don't think – I'll be surprised if a lot of people's opinions of Bo Bergdahl are changed. 
I don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, Adnan was kind of malleable in the sense that we really didn't know who he was, and we got to discover him through Serial. You're right, a lot of people already have a preconceived notion of who Bo Bergdahl is, whether what he did was treasonous or at least unbecoming uh, a military uh, soldier. Well, let me, let me throw this wrench at you. A lot of people had strong black and white opinions about Edward Snowden, and a lot of those opinions have changed over time. This is kind of what brings me to this uh, Zoom thing that I wanted to talk about that I promised I would get back to. If you heard the episode, which I know you did because you're listening to this show, Sarah made an unbelievably beautifully written analogy to a children's book that she reads to her kids or read to her kids. And I think it's the first time she's ever mentioned her kids uh, really in one of in a serial episode. And I, I actually wondered as a device whether that was meant to sort of make up for some of that glass wall we have between Sarah and Bo, sort of to remind us that she's a loving person. But anyway, she talks about how you move back and you move back and you move back and the web gets wider and wider and wider. And the people that this revolves around, it sort of gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think what she was doing was laying out what the serial season was going to be. And I have two thoughts about it. My first thought initially was this season could be about the fact that Bo Bergdahl was there. So it could be a story about the fact that we're in this war. It could be a story about how how young men are recruited into the military and then sort of that structure of the military and how it, you know, works. But then I had another thought and then somebody on Reddit posted something that actually made me realize I wasn't the only person having this thought and is that journalist Michael Hastings, who sort of famously took down Stanley McChrystal in his Rolling Stone article, also wrote a piece about Bo Bergdahl in 2012, um, which is available still now on rollingstone.com. We can post a link to it on our website, Crime Writers On. And then uh, Michael Hastings, as you might remember, was the journalist who was killed. Uh, Glenn Greenwald sort of intimated that it could have been because he was being investigated by the FBI or the CIA. Um, he was killed in a car accident. But, you know, there's a lot of stories there. But this was pre-Snowden. And the bigger question is, is Bergdahl part of something else that is heretofore unknown that is bigger, that might have to do with the government, that might have to do with surveillance, that might have something that had to do with what Hastings may have known or may not have known or someone like Hastings. I'm curious to know, Toby, does that sound insane to you? (laughs) Or does this sound like I'm getting into like pure fiction here? But I don't know. I mean, she really, I think, dropped an anvil about something big, don't you think? Uh, That was completely not the way I interpreted it, actually. When I was listening to it, and, and you may be right, I just didn't think about it in that in those terms was that you know you're, you're taking a look at this event that involved you know maybe a dozen people but the the ramifications get just get bigger and bigger and and as you look at it at different scales you get to see a little bit more about you know the ramifications and the reasons for what he did um it'll be a much more interesting series if if she can make connections to snowden for instance but i you know when I think about the scale of what Snowden did, and even if Bergdahl had been completely successful in what he was doing, it, it just seems like the scale is so different. It, unless I miss something, I mean, he's really talking about, you know, his immediate commanding officers in a, in a fairly small group, where Snowden's, you know, he, he, he blew the lid off the U.S surveillance and security system. But wasn't that also um, now Chelsea Manning's motivation was sort of an uncomfortableness in his own skin, discontent in his own job and, you know, trying to make a big statement by, you know, 
ostensibly burning a Lady Gaga CD and walking off with like hundreds of thousands of documents that he then sent to WikiLeaks. Was that the same kind of I mean, I'm not trying to say this is what Bloomberg does. I don't know. But I just it just made me think listening to that analogy, like she spent a lot of time going way back in that Zoom. You know, that wasn't my favorite part of the episode when it was done. And maybe I just completely misinterpreted it. It seemed like she was like, okay, just like bear with me because this is going to get like bigger, you know, bear with this part of the story because, you know, as we go on, it's going to get bigger and bigger. So it was a promise rather than a clue. Yeah. And I think the the whole Chelsea Manning thing, and and I think it's, it's interesting in terms of some of the things I was thinking about with this episode was how you really have these these different narratives that have come out about Bergdahl, and it's largely been controlled by the military so far, right? And so now Bergdahl's getting his chance to tell his side of the story, and I guess we'll hear about the Taliban side. Um, <laughs> Should we try to get the, the Taliban on this podcast? You like Skype but, in? Yeah, that'd be that'd be a coup. But the, but the Chelsea Manning thing, the way you you summed it up, where you said you know she's having these identity issues, and and then she deals with it by burning a Lady Gaga CD, and I think that's really that's the narrative that the military or, or the FBI or whoever has put out is like, this is like this kind of confused person. And this is the way they kind of acted out was by doing this rather than this is a person who was privy to a lot of information that they found very disturbing that they felt needed to be made public. And the fact that she's transsexual doesn't really have a whole lot to do with that decision. But it's easy to be able to put it on that and say, look, this person had all these like personal problems and this was their way of acting out rather than this was a really principled thing that they did and they put themselves in harm's way in order to do what they thought was a was a greater good, which I think is the way Bergdahl thinks of himself. And they both see themselves as whistleblowers, but the scale of what they're blowing the whistle about completely different. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, we don't know. We, we, we honestly don't know. And we don't know what he was trying to blow the whistle no. about, really. But you're right. Sarah is making a promise about the rest of the series. They're going to get to this. And she's also saying, it's not just about this little nighttime walkabout mm-hmm. and the five years afterwards. This is this is going to go all the way back to, I mean, we're going to have to... It's going to go to the top. It's going to go to the top or the bottom. <laughs> you know, We're going to talk about Guantanamo and we're going to talk Maybe. about... Uh, well, we how, how do you not? We don't How do you know. not talk about the price of his release that we started the episode with? Right. Half of that transfer are five Taliban prisoners. Right. And it said that they've done this and they've done that. Which well, I remember that being the point of controversy, that, that people were insane over the fact that, that Obama did that prisoner transfer. And that's what the House of Representatives Committee came out with on the same day as on the episode same day. Right. And we can argue, we're not going to argue about it here, but we, Kevin and I did argue about whether or not the committee released the report because they knew Serial was coming out or vice versa. So Laura, what do you think about the Zoom analogy? What do you think it could mean? Is there a bigger picture here? Am I making connections that I shouldn't even be making on this podcast? Go. Um, well, you know, I kind of thought the same as Toby. I did see that Reddit thread that you we're referencing about this bigger picture. I sort of was thinking of it more along the lines of here's one person who did something and here are all the tentacles that were touched by this one action. And, you know, you had the prisoner swap. Where did those people end up? You had the people that were killed looking for him. What happened to their families? You have the general climate in the country and the national response. And so I was looking at it more of, you know, this one action, this guy who gets out there and then is like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oops. 
and and how that one action sort of spread and all the different places from a bigger picture that it touched. I do think it's interesting that Bo Bergdahl's defense attorney was very much in favor of this information coming out, which makes me wonder, like you were saying, what is the bigger picture in terms of what this information was that he had? Or is this really the only time that the defense attorney thinks the entire story is going to get out there without being, um, you know, messaged? Yeah. And, and in court, you know, everything can't be introduced in court. Sometimes attorneys file all sorts of motions to block certain things from coming in. So this is really a great opportunity from their side of the fence to get the entire story out there through his own words. Right, right. But if they think that Sarah Koenig and the team, that this American Life spinoff team of journalists at Serial is going to produce the thing that's going to be what they want, you know, what the Bergdahl team wants them to produce, I think they're probably sorely mistaken. But, yeah. But public opinion. There's, <laughs> yeah. This case is still alive in the true. military courts. Yeah. yeah. But the recommendation is, as we already know, is that he served no jail time. Right. And and this was from the Army's investigator. So mm-hmm. we're going to get into that. I mean, and, and that's still in place. So, so who knows? And we'll probably get some courtroom yeah. scenes because we know Sarah Koenig was in the courtroom for yeah. those hearings. And to, as a kid, I did love Zoom, the TV show. Bye-bye, Freben. Subby thubbis. Thubbis us. No, is it? Okay. Sorry. I spoke OBWs. So just a final question about this episode of Serial. Oh, two, one, three, four. Okay. Final question about this episode of Serial. There have been varying opinions, I think, in the Serial sphere. I think some people are so attached to the Syed case and the sort of high school drama around the Syed case and the questions that can never be answered around the Syed case. And let's face it, people love straight true crime. We know that from our own careers as true crime writers. I saw mixed reaction to this episode of Serial. I'd love to know, kind of go around the... Uh, the table here, the the virtual table, and each sort of give a grade to the episode and, you know, a little exposition about why you're giving that grade. Laura, I'll start with you. Um, I'll go with a B plus. I think, um, like I said earlier, I've been listening to all sorts of other podcasts, um, trying to fill the void from season one. And I was pleasantly surprised to have it come back. And yeah, it is a different type of story. But I think, you know what, the ending, Sarah calling uh, the Taliban, I think pretty much made the whole episode for me. So B plus. All right, Toby, where do you land on the grading scale? Uh, You know, I think I've been uh, probably harder on Serial than than the rest of us. Uh, But I, I thought this was an A. I thought it was, I was really interested. I think it's a great story. I'm looking forward to the rest of the season, which I think is is like one of the things you try and do with the first episode. So I, I thought it was really good. High marks from Toby. What about you, Kevin? I was going to give it like an 8 out of 10. I thought... That's not the grading scale, Kevin. That's it's a, that's a B minus. No, I, I went to one of those progressive schools. <laughs> I'm just, let's, was, let's Montessori it. I don't believe in grades. <laughs> no. It did very well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought, okay, B plus. And only because I don't want to start it with an, with an A plus and then uh, You want to give it higher. room to grow? I want to give it room to grow. Oh. I don't want to just, you know... I hate those kind but of things. But it's very good. It's very... I mean, ask me after it was done. I think it was a great way to set it up. Challenging time. Topic. I think she did a good job of setting the stage of what's coming up. You know, it's not going to be just about again uh, that night uh, of the dust one. I, I'm promising you, listeners, that it's going to go into all these amazing different directions, which is the promise that she made. As a writer, she's going to have to keep it. You're right. There are a lot of people who are still attached to the Adnan thing, but and I was surprised that she didn't address that at all. I mean, I think it would have, I, I, I don't know about the rest of you. I, I, I thought if she could just acknowledge, okay, we're moving on. I don't agree. 
I, I think she, it's her right to have season two be season two. I think just like it's the right of American Horror Story to start every season with a brand new story and just move on. Sarah Koenig is a journalist. We know from writing books that, you know, even we sometimes are attached to our old stories, but you just, she, she has a brand new audience here. She needs to start fresh. At least that's my opinion. Um, do you want to know what grade I give it? Do you care? Yeah, you guys care. Um, I, I give it more than an A. I want to say A+. Plus. I'm interested in the story. I want to see where it goes. I'm hooked. The writing for me was extraordinary, and that's what sort of elevated it for me to definitely strong A material. So, all right. Well, we'll see where we go. This is a very, very exciting time for us to be able to be back on the air talking about this. But before we wrap up the episode, we need to get to the thing, which is my favorite thing to do besides talking about cereal, and that is discussing what I like to call the crime of the week. There's been a lot going on lately, and uh, I think it's really important that we maybe keep the crime of the week out of the mainstream right now, because we can get into some pretty bad territory, I think, if we talk about the crimes that are sort of headlining the news. So I'm going to talk about a little bit of a buried story. Earlier this week in Athens, Tennessee, an 81-year-old great-great-grandmother is facing assault charges after a yard sale brawl involving three generations of her family. I didn't hit nobody. I just pulled her hair, she said of the incident. This is her talking to a media outlet. Apparently, an ongoing Facebook dispute involving this woman's 58-year-old daughter and another woman had been brewing for some time. The defendant in this case is, again, an 81-year-old great-great-grandmother. But putting that aside, what I want to know from you guys is, A, have you ever had a brawl at a yard sale or anywhere else or been tempted to? Or B, have you ever had a brawl or wanted to have a brawl that was spurred by a comment on Facebook? Toby, I'm going to start with you. Uh... No brawls at yard sales, although the number of yard sales I've been at is probably can count on one one hand. And as far as Facebook stuff goes, I just don't end up getting too many brawls on Facebook. I did one about somebody who was a sort of pushing creationism on me a little bit. And uh, we just lost half our audience, Toby. Come on. <laughs> you already lost the Scientologist on us, Toby. All right. Let me try this one again. No, no, no. no. no, no. See it through. See it through, oh, man. Land the plane. You can't dust one now and walk back <laughs> into the Constantina wire. It'll shoot you down. I'm sorry, Toby. Go ahead. <laughs> about what? <laughs> right, we'll leave it in there. How about you, Laura? Ever gotten into a brawl at a yard sale or another unexpected retail location or had a fight because of something that happened on Facebook? I have not um, gotten into a fight at a yard sale, but I have had two pseudo almost brawls recently. Um, most recently last week in the Santa line here in my hometown. <gasps> wow. Um, I know. You have to get out there like two or three hours ahead of Santa arriving, which I did. And then someone tried to cut in the line. Oh. Um, yeah, it, it, and my husband had to hold me back. Um, Naughty so that, list. It was cold. It was cold waiting. She wasn't cutting in line. Um, and then I did also get into a little bit of a scuffle over the last raspberry white chocolate scone at the country store up the street a few weeks ago. <laughs> and uh, they're really good, I'm telling you. And this lady, she she got she's like, you can have it. And I said, never mind. I'll be here next week. Before you can you. have it. Never. Yeah, I don't want it now that you've looked at it, lady. Yeah, no, I was like, nope, never mind. You can have that raspberry white chocolate scone. So the next week, you know what? I got there earlier. But way more passive aggressive than you just described it, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, Kevin, tell us about your brawls. There were these end tables. <laughs> and, you know, they just, they, they were a, a set. And no, I get a little uh, passive aggressive in line. 
at like you know the supermarket like if it's the express yeah, line and it's like more than 10 items a person in front of me I will hem and haw but I, I think the closest I've come recently was in the line at the cable company mm-hmm. where you go and you, you drop off like you know the old equipment and stuff and it's kind of like the DMV with better televisions <laughs> and it's way it's one long line and there was one guy there and it's like come on man even the post office once in a while puts a second guy out there and uh there was this old lady in front of me, and in front of her was this nice couple with this little baby. And this woman would say, oh, what a beautiful baby. And then went on and on about like how somebody she knew, and the baby had cancer, and all this horrible stuff. And I'm thinking, these poor parents just want to say, shut up, lady. My kid is fine. And I'm thinking... God, I really want to blow my brains out. I just want to throw this equipment down and just say it's there. Pick it up. Charge me later. But I didn't punch so anybody. Assault this old lady? Wow. No, I didn't want to assault it. Well, it's an old lady. I mean, come on, man. You think you there's no Christina Gutierrez around to defend what? me anymore? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably wrap it up on that note. Before I let you all go, Toby, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? Uh, Toby Ball and H. Well, Toby, thank you so much for joining us with your always interesting take on things and your very positive grade of episode one of Serial Season 2. Thanks so much. Thank you. And Laura, you are on the Twitter as well, right? Yes, the Twitter, uh, at Laura Bricker. And we should point out that you are L-A-R-A Bricker. Yes. Uh, yes, and even though I may make it sound like Laura, because I'm from Long Island, it's Laura Bricker, L-A-R-A Bricker. Thank you so much for coming back. And I promise if we do this in person, I will have enough scones for everyone. Okay. And I'll bring my little pumpkin Santa cheesecake things. <laughs> and Kevin, how can people find you on Twitter? At Kevin P. Flynn. Right? I forgot. I honestly got I just forgot what my Twitter handle is. <laughs> There's a right, Kevin P. Flynn? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Say it again. I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. Well, <laughs> Thank you for being here and lending us your voice this week. We really appreciate it. Well, I did not want my duty service to be whereabouts unknown. Oh, you don't want to wash out of this podcast? I don't want to wash out of the podcast. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you'd like us to answer, send us a tweet. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is Facebook slash Crime Writers On Serial. You can also send an email with your questions and comments or voice memos to crimewriterson at gmail.com. Our theme music was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, check out our blog. Do some shopping with our Amazon link. You can even bookmark it if you want. It's a great way to support this podcast by buying the things you're planning to buy anyway. You can kick in a few bucks via PayPal. You can also check out our brand new Buy Our Books page. We've posted links to all of our books on Kindle and an actual book book form. If you use those links, you'll also be supporting this podcast. Featured there right now is Kevin and my upcoming book, Dark Heart, about a New Hampshire murder so depraved I don't even want to talk about it on this podcast. Also, American Sweepstakes, Kevin Flynn's nonfiction account of how the first legal lottery in the United States came to be. Fun facts, it involved the Kennedys, the FBI agent who solved the Brinks heist, and a tenacious newspaper editor. So if you know someone who enjoys books about politics or history and the like, check out American Sweepstakes on our Buy Our Books page. On behalf of all of the crime writers, it's so good to be back. And if you've been listening for a while, thanks for sticking with us. We will catch you next week. So I want to do a sound check with everybody. Um, Laura, can you tell me what you are baking for Christmas today? Well, I am really doing my Martha Stewart thing. I am making Santa Hat cheesecakes. 
Mm. I knew it. <laughs> did I not completely call that she, I mean, I, I didn't even like know she was baking today, but I did. I knew she would be baking. You knew deep down. Anyway, so Toby, what would you be baking today for uh, Christmas if you were baking something? Uh, grilled cheese squares. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Cut no, into the shape I, of reindeer. I, no I do Christmas cookies every year. That's my big thing. Are they hyper-masculine Christmas cookies? Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Each year, 4.7 million women are physically abused in the U.S., and on average, three women are killed every day by a current or former partner. One in four women will be the victim of severe violence in their lifetimes, as will one in seven men. Now, last episode, I made a plea to you, our listeners, to help out in a small way, which was to pledge a little money for a walk that I did where I walked a mile in high heel shoes. I really want to thank the people who kicked in to sponsor me in my walk to help a crisis center here in central New Hampshire. It was a fun time, and we did raise a lot of money that's going to benefit people that really need it, both men and women. And, and I promised that if you you did send me some money, I'd mention your name on the podcast. So let me say thank you to Barbara Chess, Jennifer Whitcomb, Katie Harris, Susan Wren, Jonathan Smith, Susan Youngs, Amy Keys, Jessica Rager, Rebecca Lavoy, Sharon Dona, Rachel Webb, Jill Phoenix, Michelle Collins, Missy Lackey, Diane and Clara Bodet, Jennifer and Isaac Rubenstein, and TJ Cunahan, who offered to throw in a little extra money if he could get a photograph of me in the high heel shoes, which is a little weird, dude, but it's a good cause. Anyway, thank you very much. And uh, if you couldn't help me out this time, do what you can where you are. Do something in your community to help promote safety and tranquility in the home. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.